following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. There have been, and you know there have been, rocket announcements that have changed your life, announcements that have altered our country, and there have been announcements that have actually rocked the world. I'm going to just highlight a few of them. Maybe you'll remember some of them. You'd have to be pretty old to remember that moment when FDR came on the air and announced in December 7, 1941, that we had been attacked and we entered into World War II. That was a big announcement. That changed the course of history of the world. Interesting enough, a few of you, maybe more of you, will remember what you were doing on November 22nd, 1963, when you heard the news that John Fitzgerald Kennedy had been shot and killed in Dallas, Texas. That was a monumental moment in history. Sci-fi fans, you'll remember and never forget May 25th, 1977, when the movie Star Wars premiered. That's right. Not enough of you know September 29th, 1980. That was the date that Jean Sharp received her first and only marriage proposal. That's right. <laughs> January 28th, 1986, the entire crew of the space shuttle Challenger died. I remember I was coming back from an overseas flight, and I got the news on the phone in New York City. I'll never forget standing there being shocked by that moment. And all of us remember the world-changing event when Muslim terrorists attacked the uh, basically the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, and that attack that we now call 9-11, September 11th, 2001. Staggering announcements, world-altering announcements, but they all pale. They all fade away. They're all almost inconsequential, literally forgettable. When you compare the fact that the God who made this universe, the God who made you and made me, the Creator, actually announced that he would be born into the human race, born as a man. That is the announcement that you find in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. So if you're not there and you got your Bibles, please open them to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to study this together in celebration of not only the virgin birth, but an announcement of the only way to be forgiven, the only way to actually stand before God and not be condemned, the only way to we actually have a new life, to actually be transformed internally, the only way to avoid eternal torment in hell and the only way to actually spend eternity in heaven, to be right with the God who is angry at us for our rebellion, is through this birth of Jesus Christ, the birth that we celebrate. So, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33, we'll look at, we'll continue on in this study at Christmas Eve, but follow along in your outline and read along with me from your outline this familiar but powerful proclamation, this incredible and greatest of all announcements. Let's read it out loud together. Would you from your outline, starting in verse 26, everyone together, here we go. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. 
but she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is God, through the angel Gabriel, promising that God is coming into the world. God is coming into the world. Now, you've all read your Bible, and if you have, at some point when you're reading the Old Testament, you know that this is not the first time this was promised, right? You've seen this promise before. In fact, if you've read the Old Testament, you've probably read somewhere between 300 and 350 predictions in the Old Testament of the birth of Jesus Christ. 350, that's, would you say that's a lot? 39 books of the Old Testament, they were already collected by the time Christ was born. They were already actually even translated from Hebrew into Greek 200 years before the birth of Christ. So these predictions are legit. They come right out of the text of the Old Testament, and they're talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. Look at some of them. They're in your outline there listed for you. Isaiah 7:14. Here's the sign the Lord himself is going to give you this. Behold, a virgin will be with what? Child and bear a son, and he will call his name Emmanuel, and that means what? God with us. God is going to be with us. Isaiah 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. He is Mighty God. He is the Father of Eternity, the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on, and how long? Forevermore, eternally. This is an eternal rule. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came upon the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all men of every language might serve him, his dominion is a, what kind of dominion? Everlasting, eternal, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Micah 5.2 makes it more personal. It says, Bethlehem, hey, this little town of Bethlehem, you're going to be little among the clans of Judah, but from you, one will come forth from me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of when? Eternity. Again, eternal. These are all promises that this will be an eternal change. Some announcements we've heard made changes as our society. These will be eternal changes. Eternally. 350 times. Now understand, the Old Testament promised Christ is coming. Gabriel's prediction was not true. True in the sense of being brand new. It's true in the sense that it's now imminent. It's imminent. It's coming right now. God in the flesh, God born as a man, would do what no man and no religion could ever do. And that was that it would provide forgiveness from sin that separates every human, every person from God. God made it clear, really clear, 
that he would provide salvation sufficient to rescue you and to rescue me and to rescue a doomed humanity. This is the big difference between Christianity and every other faith. Every other religion on earth is basically designed by people and in many times, even today, there are Christians who call themselves Christians, but they've made up their own form of Christianity. And that kind of religion is, well, I chose, or I had an experience, or I'm working my way to God. It's the, it's the religion of human achievement, that somehow I'm going to be good enough, religious enough, righteous enough, uh, you know, do enough good things that somehow away the bad things, and therefore God's going to accept me. And God says, no, that won't happen. That won't work. You need Christianity, the true faith that's taught in the Bible, which is a religion, a faith of divine accomplishment. In other words, we don't work our way to heaven, but God did the work on our behalf. God came down and accomplished it because you'll never be good enough. You'll never make the right choices, even choosing. You'll never be nice enough for God to accept you and bring you into his presence. Now, that's the bad news. What's the good news, this gospel? The good news is God loved his children enough to actually do the work on your behalf. In other words, the wages of sin is, so someone had to die on our behalf. Someone had to suffer for sin on our behalf. Someone had to take the eternal torment that you deserve in hell forever upon himself and die in your place. And that's what Christ came to do, to die for your sins as your substitute rise from the dead and live to provide you with the only way of salvation, the only way. And God started that process right here, this is what we celebrate at Christmas, right here with the birth of his son being announced in these verses. That was God's plan. And he does it with incredible simplicity here. He explains it really, really clearly. God announces that all of those Old Testament promises, over 300 of them, are now fulfilled in the birth of this child that is being promised right here in this passage. Now, these verses break down into several key points. We're drawing basically the meaning out of the text. It's called exposition. We're trying to say, what did God mean by what he said, not read into what we want to have it say. And therefore, it remarkably has about seven points. And they, I don't know how this happened, all begin with the letter M. So here we go. Number one in your outline, the messenger. The messenger, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. Now, this is an amazing verse. You say, it looks like a normal verse to me. What's so amazing about this verse? I'm so glad you asked. What's so amazing about it is that this announcement breaks 400 years of silence. There hasn't been a single revelation from God, a prophet from God, a miracle from God since the closing of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament till now the opening until this moment. There's been absolute silence. So this is a, a shocker. And amazingly, there's two announcements that have occurred within two, excuse me, six months of each other. The first one was the angel Gabriel who basically went to Zacharias and his barren wife Elizabeth with the news that she's going to give birth to John the Baptist. That's the first announcement. Six months later, we find ourselves right here in this text that we're looking at as Gabriel makes this announcement to Mary. And Gabriel is an angel. He's not a human being. He's an angel. This is a race of beings, these holy angels, 
sinless creatures who serve God in a variety of ways. And they're a different race. They're not aliens from outer space. They are creations of God, but they're unique. And they're basically mentioned 23 times in Luke. Only two of them are named, though. One of them, his name is Michael. And he's the one that does strong and powerful things on God's behalf. The other one is named Gabriel. And Gabriel is the announcer angel. He's the one who brings the news from God to humanity. He gives great, glorious, grave messages from heaven to earth, from God to mankind. Take a look at verse 19 of Luke chapter 1. Verse 19, it says, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. Wow. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So this amazing being, a high-ranking angel, comes down out of heaven to a small, out-of-the-way Galilean town named Nazareth. Only a few thousand people live in Nazareth, much smaller than our community here, much smaller. In fact, it's an obscure place. It's off the trade routes. You know, it's not near the 215. It's not near the 15. It's like Hemet, way out in the middle of nowhere, all right? And understand, this is uh, just above the Valley of Megiddo town, kind of just out there by itself. Israelites of the first century mocked Nazareth. They made fun of it. They said it was a hick town. And the reason is that there's only 2,000 people, and almost half of them were Gentiles. Half of them Gentiles, not just Jews, but Gentiles. It's almost as if God were foretelling that Christ has come for all the insignificant people in the eyes of the world and yet loved and treasured by God. This is an insignificant place. It's almost as if God is declaring, I didn't come to send my son only to my Jewish people, but I came to send them for both Jew and Gentile because Nazareth is made up of equally Jew and Gentile, and therefore every tribe, every tongue, every nation would come to know Christ in a unique way. But Gabriel doesn't stop with that. He actually begins to talk to, point number two, Mary. He talks to Mary. In just a moment, I'm going to have just a couple people stand in our midst. Uh, there might not be many here, but I know there's some junior hires here, and I need the 13 to 16-year-olds just for about five seconds to stand up. So I want you to look at them for a moment, really quickly. So if you are 13 to 16 somewhere, would you please stand and remain standing for five seconds? Ready? Go. Here they are. Take a look at them. Come on, look around, look at them, look at, let's thank them for standing. Okay, you can sit down now. That's very kind. There's a reason I had them stand. This should blow you away. It's pretty strong that Mary's 13. She's 13 years old. It blows me away because she's so young. It blows me away because, you know, we don't think about that in terms of marriage in our culture. But in that culture, the Roman habit, uh, the Jewish custom was for young gals at 13 years of age or so to get engaged and then would be married a year later. And that's exactly where Mary's at. And so Gabriel is speaking to Mary in this particular context of that age. That's how they solved the teenage problem, by the way. They got married early. And interesting enough, look what is said here in verse 27. Take a look at verse 27. To a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendant of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Now here's God's choice. 
to give birth to his son. God incarnate. God the son. Verse 27 identifies her as a young woman. She's the... uh, who's basically fiancé, is in the line of David. She's also in the line of David. We learn elsewhere she's still a virgin who is engaged and married, to be married to Joseph in the future here. She could have been a, a queen. She could have been a, a powerful princess or the daughter of someone influential, even somebody who's super wealthy. She could have been a woman of renown, but kind of like God's choice of this little tiny city, Nazareth, Mary is obscure, she's normal, she's unknown, and she's even poor. Her name is Mary. That word means exalted one. And Luke reminds us that she's a virgin. She had no sexual relations. In fact, the term virgin is never used to describe a married woman, so she can be certain, and we can be certain, that Mary was truly a virgin here, especially because we know the custom of its day, which was the normal Roman custom, and it was the normal Jewish custom, that 13-year-olds would then be engaged for a year and then marry. So God sovereignly chose an unknown, unassuming young woman named Mary from an obscure village called Nazareth to be the mother, the birth mother of Jesus. Just to make a point, God's plans, God's purposes are never our purposes and plans. They don't conform to our ideas, our preference, our selections. We, we would want somebody magnificent, and God said, I want somebody very common, very, very in a sense, isolated, very simple, and hopefully very much committed to him. His ways are not our ways, amen? And therefore, Mary's about to find out just what God has in mind for her life. So number three is the message, the message. We know a little bit about the messenger, Gabriel. We know a little bit about Mary. What is the content of the message that Gabriel has for Mary that brings from God? It is a message of blessing, verses 28 to 30. Take a look at it in your Bible there. And in coming, he said to her, greetings, favored one. He comes in. Now, when it says he comes in, he must have been on the outside and came into the house, wherever she is, and said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she is very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, Luke writes this in his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He keeps it really simple. This is very direct. I love the way Luke writes. And Gabriel appears to Mary, who apparently is alone. There are a lot of commentators that say she's cooking, which would put her in an isolated spot of the house. So she might even be preparing food or something like that. And Gabriel keeps it low, low key, not over the top. There's no big fanfare. You know, there's no trumpets. You know, there's no thunder. There's no lightning. You know, it just, he just comes in. Hail Mary. You know, hello Mary. This is not to shock her or frighten her. He basically, what's his message? He says, look at verse 28. He says, hello. That's what he says. Greetings. That's hail or rejoice, but it's hello. Hello Mary. He keeps his appearance and his message understated so that she doesn't panic. So in a calm, reassuring, human-style voice, Gabriel announces himself to Mary. Hello. And what does this incredible, mighty angel say? He says to her in the text there, greetings, favored one. Now, this is a good translation. The reason I'm going to make a point of this is so I can highlight something. You ever seen a Catholic with the rosary? 
right? And what do they do as they go through that? Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace. Anybody with me on that? You understand that. This is the passage where they get that from. Let me explain it. For all you ex-Catholics, let me clarify. The translation favored one here is the accurate one from the original language. It is graced one. I'm, I'm gracing you, Mary. That's what he's saying. But what the Catholic commentators and Catholic theologians did is they intentionally and errantly translated this phrase from the Latin. So it went from Greek to Latin to then modern language. And they took from the Latin there, Hail Mary, full of grace. That's not the intention of this text, but that's where they got it from. And therefore, all those Hail Marys come from this phrase. But the intention is for Gabriel to say, Hail Mary, one who is being graced. You are right now being graced. I'm giving you grace. I'm, I'm extending it to you. It's not one who's full of grace or one who dispenses grace, but one who's receiving grace, just like you do when you're saved. You receive grace. And he's saying, Mary, you're getting grace. The Lord is with you. You have found grace with God. You're being graced. John MacArthur puts it this way. These words, quote, are not praising Mary for her inherently virtuous, godly, or worthy character. But Gabriel's message to her simply says that God has freely chosen to give grace to Mary, and that is what made her favored or blessed, end quote. So Gabriel had to use this expression because before God, Mary is a, anybody? Sinner. A sinner, just like you, just like me. She's unworthy in her own strength and in her own character. She can't earn her way to heaven like anybody else can't earn their way to heaven. She's not that kind of person. She is a human being born by human parents, and therefore, she's in need of grace. Later in verse 47, Mary calls, look at verse 47, God my Savior. Now, you don't call God your Savior unless you are a sinner who needs saving. That's what, they're not saving you from anything other than your sin, and therefore she's admitting her need of a Savior at that particular point. And Mary didn't respond with pride or smug arrogance, like, what are you saying this to me for? I'm above all that. No, not, that's not at all. Look at verse 29. She is very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Perplexed is a state of mind which means confused, questioning, and disturbed. Now listen, disturbing and being disturbed is sin, all right? And therefore, she's disturbed because she's a sinner in need of a Savior. And Mary knew what believing people know, and believing people know they need a Savior. Can I hear an amen to that? You do. Whenever anyone considers, just think about this, you and I are going to face God face to face, and he's going to judge us. The moment you actually put yourself in that situation, you'll admit you're a sinner. And the moment you know that God's going to look right through you, look through all your emotions and all your attitudes and all your motives and all your thoughts, are you going to stand before God this morning and say, I've never sinned, not one of you is going to do that. You know you have to come to the place. Well, here's Mary in this situation going, whoa, this is, this is a serious situation. You're facing, in a sense, she's thinking, I'm, I'm being uh, evaluated here. I'm, I'm standing before an angel. And therefore, every one of us, including Mary, knows they fall short of God's perfection. Every one of us knows here, would you please nod your head, that you are not perfect. Yes, okay. Secondly, we know that we violated God's law in some way. 
I, I say you've lied, lusted, looted, and lipped off, right? Uh, you've hated, hurt, harmed, and hassled. Took me a long time to come over that. All right. You've broken most, if not all, of the Ten Commandments in some form. You failed to love. You failed to give. You failed to serve. You failed to care for someone, not just the hurting, but anybody, more times than you'll admit. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. Hear an amen to that? We need it. We need it. We stand condemned before a holy God. So Mary's thinking, you know, uh, I'm giving you grace. Well, why would God ever choose me, an unworthy sinner, to receive grace? Why would the Lord single me out for such a special privilege? Nothing on earth could prepare her for what she's about to hear. Because she's thinking this, and God's going to take her a whole new direction. Now, she's perplexed, she's pondering, but she's also afraid. You say, why is she afraid? Listen, angels are awesome beings. To human beings, when someone faces an angel in the scripture, what do they most often do? Answer, they start worshiping or they faint. Now, that's an awesome being. Are you with me on that? So Mary's looking at this, and she's going, whoa! And of course, angels, as soon as you start worshiping, what do they do? I'm, don't worship me, dummy. Okay, don't do that. <laughs> worship God. Okay, we worship God. You worship God. We, uh, yeah, maybe to you, we're an awesome being, but to, to us, that's the one who deserves all worship. God himself. Christ himself. And so they automatically turn the focus there. But Mary's fear is met with verse 30. Take a look at it. The angel said to her, do not be what? Afraid, Mary, for you have found favor, found grace with God. I'm not coming to you in judgment, Mary, but I'm coming to you in in a sense in grace so you have nothing to fear. You've got God's pleasure, God's choice, God's gift of free grace. And Mary responds in verses 46 to 49 with her great expression of praise not as the blesser but as the one who has been blessed as the one who's been blessed now you all know here i hope that the same blessing that mary is being offered here of god's grace is also offered to you the bible teaches over and over again that you can be saved are you ready by god's grace not because you ever earned it but because god gives it And that is made available to you. And so here we are, understanding that that grace is available, but you have to understand, number four in your outline, who the Messiah is. The Messiah. That blessing of grace only comes through the Messiah. Gabriel reveals the biggest announcement ever, ever given, outshadows every other announcement that has ever been made, And he basically is telling us that God's going to become a man, and it's going to start with you, Mary, giving birth to God, born as a baby. Verse 31, take a look. And behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have, again, eternally, no end. Mary's going to be the virgin mother of the divine child Christ, the king, the Lord, the redeemer, the second person of the Trinity. Listen, God and man in one person without confusion. God and man in one person without confusion. I'm not certain how much the announcement of his 
gracious favor shocked Mary. I'm coming to you with grace, but I guarantee you she was shocked over hearing this part of the announcement, all right? I'm sure her mouth was open when he says, you're going to give birth, all right? You're going to give birth to the God-man. That rocked her life. How could it not? How in the world will she conceive God's own son in her womb? Mary knew the only way to conceive was that to have a sexual relationship with a man, and she had never had marital relationship, a fact that she confirmed to verse 34 when she said, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Mary's affirming she's still a virgin. She humanly knows no woman can have a child without the involvement of a man, but she is not left to speculate. We're going to continue this thought on Christmas Eve, but understand, let's look at it here, verse 35 to 37. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who has been called barren is now in her sixth month, she didn't know that, for nothing will be what? impossible to God. Nothing. Just Isaiah 7:14 again. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. So Jesus will be born a virgin to be both God and man in one person without confusion and making him able, are you ready, to satisfy God's absolute perfection of sacrifice his, his absolute requirement that the perfect sacrifice as God so Jesus could make that sacrifice and also be able to be fully human so he, Christ, could be our substitute, take the punishment that we deserved upon himself for a whole eternity of hell could fall on Christ on our behalf. Well, then, what did Jesus come to do? Well, number five in your outline, what is Christ's mission? His mission says in verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. Now Jesus, the name Jesus means Jehovah saves or God saves. And that's the message of the New Testament. God is the one who saves sinner. The one true God is a saving God. It says in Luke chapter 2 verse 11, after his birth for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Understand, this is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, second person who's born as a man in order to seek and save that which is lost. Verse 31 adds, not only is Jesus the Savior, but he is great. He is great. So he's come to save humanity, but he is great. He will be, verse 32, look at it, be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Great is very overused today. I've heard over the holidays already, these are great candies. Uh, these are great problems. I've even heard and uh, kind of got sucked into, these are great socks. Anybody? Okay. But this great is beyond splendid. It is beyond magnificent. It is beyond eminent. This great is not even necessarily referring to his work on the cross. This is intrinsically who Christ is, is great, is great. Jesus manifests and, and he actually magnifies greatness for all to see. He is the glorious character of God in a bod. God in a bod? 
you see God in every picture of Christ. Everything he says will be like God. Everything he acts and behaves will be like God. He thinks like God. He performs miracles only God can do. He will teach truth from God. He will respond with love and with goodness and with wisdom and omniscience that only God will possess. And understand, in the plan of God, the wisdom of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, it was predetermined from eternity past that it would be the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to be the person who reveals God to humanity and to accomplish salvation for his chosen children. That was the predetermined plan of God. And this mission all begins with Christmas. This mission in history begins with the birth of the God-man, showing us, number six in your outline, Christ's matchlessness. His matchlessness. Say that with me, ready? Matchlessness. Gabriel, the angel, look what he says in verse 32. This is so cool. He says, he, Jesus, will be great and will call the Son of the Most High. He will be called the Son of the Most High. Most High, the highest, a familiar title of God. There is no one higher than Christ. Now, you've got to understand the history behind this. Okay, are you ready? Let me, let me help you with modern day situation. If you go to Japan, I know a missionary friend of mine in Japan, and he shared this with me, and then I watched it. I actually observed this behavior. If two Japanese businessmen meet each other on the street and they don't know each other, what they do in their three-piece Hong Kong suits is they exchange cards quickly, and they each look at each other's card, and they quickly analyze is this guy wealthier than I am, more influential than I am, more significant? Or am I got the edge on him and I have a higher position and whatever? Whoever they determine, and they know, the moment they look at that guy's card, they know their position, they know their wealth by looking at that card, the one of the lower wealth and lower position will bow lower than the one who is not. Are you getting it? The guy with the higher salary is a little taller. They both bow, but not as much as the other guy. Are you tracking with me? Now you're getting a little feel. Now, if you were way back in the first century and you came across a king and you came into his throne room, there would never be one second where you would stand taller or higher or be more elevated than that king. That was the signification of their magnificent. Listen, with Jesus Christ, you do not have to exchange cards. The greatest people who have ever lived on planet Earth, the greatest people who live on planet Earth now, the most influential people who live on planet Earth now, the, the richest people who are just oozing with money on planet Earth right now, will, will, will not have to debate when they face Christ. They will just fall flat on their face. Because there is no one higher than Christ. He is El Elyon, the highest, above all, above all beings, above all creatures, above all angels, above all people. He is the highest, the king above all kings, the Lord above what? All lords. That's Christ. Mary knew that title. She understood, and Luke actually repeats this title elsewhere in the Gospels. He is 
the highest. No one is higher. No one is more exalted. No one is more powerful than Christ. In fact, it is Christ who shares the same essence as the one true God. He is the second person of the triune God. He is equally God with the Father and with the Spirit. So much so in John 14, 9, it says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. In John 10, 30, I and my Father are what? One. Gabriel announces and the New Testament confirms that Jesus was and always will be matchless, matchless, the highest, because he is the Savior, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who will be born right now in this context of the Virgin Mary as a baby on Christmas morning. But to what purpose? Number seven, Christ's monarchy. Christ's monarchy. Christ was born a baby, He knew he was God. By the age of 12, he knew that he was God at that point. He lived a totally perfect life. He taught. He discipled his men. He broke the laws of nature to do miracles where he healed and cleansed and calmed a storm and did all those amazing things, ministered for three and a half years, and then he finally offered himself as fully God, fully man, as man to be our substitute. To die on the cross, to bear the wrath that we deserve for our sin, and then because he had no sin of his own, to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven, and now he lives as the only one. No other religion, no other faith can save you. The Bible declares very clearly that it will only be through Christ, because only Christ was fully perfectly man so he could be the substitute for mankind on the cross and bear the punishment that we deserve before a holy God and Christ was fully God himself so therefore he could satisfy the father and his holiness by dying perfectly without sin in any of this process so bear that punishment that was due to you falling on him rising from the dead ascending into heaven and now lives as the one who can then give you salvation now, abundant life now, and eternal life forever. doesn't mean it's going to be a perfect life. It doesn't mean it's going to be a life without struggle. But you will be right with God now and forever. You no longer have to fear death. Isn't that great in COVID times? You don't have to fear death. When you surrender to Christ in genuine salvation, every one of your sins is punished on Christ. On the cross, and his perfect righteousness covers you completely so you can stand in God's presence perfectly in heaven forever, not because you are perfect, but because you were made perfect by Christ's righteousness. Do you understand? You have to be perfect to get to heaven. One more time. You have to be perfect to get to heaven. And you are not perfect, and I especially am not perfect. And the only way that I could actually get to heaven is that Christ would then cover me with his righteousness, that robe, so I could stand in his presence. That's the only outfit that will allow you to stand in God's presence. And then my sin would fall on Christ. And it's the same with every genuine believer in this room. It only happens when Christ exchanges, in a sense, takes your sin and covers you with his righteousness. But that's not the finish of your salvation because the Bible tells us here that he's coming back. Did you see those three verses? He's going to reign. He's going to be over his 
you know, Father David's throne. He's going to rule Jacob. I mean, he's coming back. Now listen, when he comes back, he ain't going to be the same one you saw in the Gospels. Oh, it's going to be the same Jesus, but he isn't going to look the same because when he was with us in the Gospels, he was veiled in his humanity. All you saw when you saw Christ, he didn't glow, by the way, friends. Okay, he, when he walked, he left footprints. There was no halo around him. There was no glow. He looked like a normal person. When he comes back, he will not look like that. He will be unveiled, and you will see the manifestation of all his attributes in his glory. He will be almost unlookable. He will be so magnificent. Do you understand? When he returns, he returns to rule as the king above all kings, as the Lord of, of all lords. He's going to judge as the unrivaled king. Look at it. Verse 32 and 33, it says, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have what? No end. Listen, when people come to you and go, oh, Jesus is cool. Have you heard that? I remember I was sitting on the beach last time I heard that. Oh, yeah, I, I like Jesus. He's cool. He's throwing me a shaka, okay? And I'm like, no! No. And listen, I want you to answer, no! In the same way, just like that. When people go, listen, when people approach you like the Doobie Brothers, Jesus is just all right by me. When they say that to you, you go, no, 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 no. You, that is not the Jesus of the Bible. That's, that, that, he's not cool. He's not your bud. Okay? He is God incarnate. After today, you say, he's not a nice guy. He's God He's the God you have to answer to. He's the Lord you have to submit to. You will bow before him. He rules this universe. He rules your life. If you don't repent and turn from your sinful ways, he will be the one who judges you. He will be the one who condemns you. He will be the one who judges you and casts you into hell where you will suffer for all eternity because of your sinful rebellion to his rule. Merry Christmas. All right? Gabriel affirms Christ will reign forever. This little baby is going to rule this planet. Eternal kingdom that will never end and only those who submit to his rule will reign with him. Gabriel tells Mary that her soon-to-be Holy Spirit-conceived newborn baby will actually rule this planet just like he promised the king above all kings, the Lord who is above all all lords, the promised Messiah, and the line of David, the everlasting God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. So take this home with me, all right? Three final thoughts, A, B, C, letter A, alone. Christ alone can forgive you. God is perfect, you are not. God is holy, you are sinful. God is righteous, you are unrighteous. The human race has rebelled against God. Have you not done your own thing? Have you not gone your own way? Have you not said, well, yeah, I know you say this, but I'm going to do something else. Listen, every Christian in the room is going to say that. We've all gone our own way. We have fallen short of his perfect character. We've all violated his law. The Bible calls this sin, and the wages of sin is death. And it's not just physical death, it's eternal death. You say, oh, you mean I go out of existence? No, you are eternally dying, eternal torment in hell. You don't get annihilated. And you cannot undo this. The whole point of the gospel of grace that God does it is you can't do it. You can't start living better. You, you cannot make up for what you've done. You're lost, blind, condemned, bound, the Bible says, 
you're, you're going to bound for torment unless a perfect man dies in your place, unless a perfect God offers himself to, as a sacrifice before the Lord. If you surrender to Christ and exchange all that you are for all that he is, then giving you then and covering you with his perfect righteousness, which is the only outfit you can wear in heaven, then you can be in his presence now and forever wearing his perfect righteousness. You have to be perfect to make it, and only Christ can make you that way with his righteousness, not by what you did, but by what he did. He did. So it's Christ alone. Letter B is both. Understand that both eternal love and eternal judgment are found in Christ. Both compassion from Christ to die on your behalf, to extend grace to you, but there's also condemnation from Christ. You say, Chris, that's not fair. That's not just. How can you say that God is unjust when he did the work for you to save you? He's the one who suffered. He's the one who died on your behalf. He did what was necessary for you to become right with him. God's not unjust. Christ paid the ultimate price for those who choose to rebel against him. And today the responsibility lies with you, whether you'll submit to his eternal love and respond to him and exchange all that you are for all that he is, or you reject his sacrifice, continue to live in rebellion of Christ, your way, not his ways, and ultimately find yourself forever in hell in torture. The apostle John put it so simply this way, John 3.36, in one verse he tells you, look what he says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who believes, you believe, you put your life in Christ's hands, you have eternal life. He who does not obey the Son, follow the Son, submit to the Son. He who does not do that will not see life, but the what? The wrath of God abides on him. That's what God has called us to, to choose to respond. So let us see, come. Come to Christ. Joshua called the Israelites to, hey, listen, as far as me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I, I know you might want to serve these Canaanite gods. We're going to serve God. We're going to serve the one true God. Elijah said, listen, how long are you going to hesitate? How long are you going to debate? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Listen, Jesus said, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And our great creator and redeemer said, there is a narrow way that you must follow to come to me. A narrow way. Look at what he says. This is not my words. He is his words. He says, enter through the, what kind of gate? Narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. Listen, those people on the broad road of destruction, they, they don't think they're going to eternal torment in hell. They think they're going to heaven. They've got a form of religion. They've got a, a style of Christianity. They've prayed a prayer once. They walked an aisle once or something. They made some sort of commitment. But they're on this broad road. It's made no difference in their life. But they're, they're thinking they're headed toward heaven when they're not. The narrow way is Jesus' way. When he said, I am the way, I am the truth in John 14, 6. And I am, what? The life. And no one will come to the Father except through me. The narrow way is to say, I'm surrendering my life to Christ. I believe that he is the Savior. I believe there's no other way of salvation. If I don't surrender to him, I will not be saved, and therefore it's a very narrow way. Are you on the narrow path? Come to Christ. You know your family, your friends are praying for you. They want you to see the reality of the gospel. Don't hesitate. Don't delay. Don't turn away. 
let today, let this week be the day or the week of forgiveness, new life, a new heart, that you're now related to him now and you're related to him forever. You have no longer any need to fear death, fear the consequences of, of whatever life you've lived. Now you are forgiven, you're cleansed, you're ready to live for him, to experience his love and his light, to experience in a sense what it means to be freed from the slavery of sin and to be free to be able to pursue Christ. You can be freed if you turn to Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that today you would work in our midst and that you might draw some who have hard hearts, who have hearts made of stone, that you'd crack that and give them a heart of flesh, a heart that could respond to you in repentance and faith. And Father, for the rest of us, that we would celebrate you, we'd worship you as the highest, as the greatest, as one who is beyond what we can even imagine, exceeding beyond what we could even think, your vastness, your character is so overwhelming. We just love you and we thank you for being that little baby that's crying right now and becoming that child to live among us and to accomplish our salvation. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And now we want to worship you again with praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast, and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.